0: I demand your head. Perhaps you like my arms instead. I've lost my head the moment I saw you smile.
1: Remember, you're on trial. Will you do as I advise?
0: Madam, you will be surprised. You mean? Anything to please the Queen.
1: Welcome to Season 3 of How Would Lubitsch Do It? A podcast in which we discuss the works of director Ernst Lubitsch, one film at a time. It's 1924, and Will Ross joins us to discuss Forbidden Paradise. Come visit ernstcast.com if you'd like show notes, resources as to where you might find the films we'll be discussing, a link to our Discord, or just to say hi. So, we are back here with Will Ross. You're returning from our journey through the Wildcat. And now we're back. Yeah. With yeah. Forbidden Paradise. Another film starring Pola Negri. Another strangely titled film. Yes, I noted this. You seem to have drawn the short straw twice. <laughs> I've tried to figure out what The Forbidden Paradise is and what relevance it could possibly have to this
0: court sex farce. But what do you think? Where is The Forbidden Paradise? If it wasn't just a holdover title from the production process... I would have to say that a forbidden paradise here would be, there's no paradise within the film. It's a political utopia that is unreachable because everyone's so politically pliable. You know, all, mm-hmm. all political ideals fall by way of individual desires. That would be the paradise, the idyllic political state that could be reached if people weren't so easily corrupted. Do you think that's actually what I mean? No. <laughs>
1: I mean... Well, the real paradise was the treasure we found along the way. Yeah. Where is my treasure? Where is my forbidden paradise? There we go. There's a lot going on here historically that we should get to, but not a ton. Here we have Ernst Lubitsch and Paul Negri once again working together. They, after having a series of falling outs in Berlin, reconciled after a chance meeting while making the Marriage Circle. And they were actually neighbors in Hollywood at around this time for a certain period. And depending on who you ask, Pola Negri gallantly came out to save Lubitsch's career to get him work on this film, or if you ask other people, Lubitsch was brought in to rescue Pola Negri's career. The answer, as usual, is probably something that is lost to history.
0: Yeah. As usual, there's no point in even speculating on the historical context for this. We should just ignore it entirely and assume all books are liars. Here we have Ernst Lubitsch for the first time working with
1: Paramount. He is on loan from Warner Brothers. So we have actually a change in some crew, not all. Uh, Charles Van Anker is back as cinematographer, but we have a significantly different production design aesthetic than I think what we've been used to. We have Hans Dreyer, on the art direction duty. So we're getting into, I think, already a bit of a slight modernist art deco aesthetic here. It's nowhere near the extravagance we would see in One Hour With You in Trouble in Paradise, which he also did, but it's definitely a slightly different direction than The Mirror Circle. This film is the subject of contradictory stories as to its provenance, which to me makes sense given how odd the film is and how it treats its subject historically. But essentially, as far as we know, the film is based on the 1922 Broadway play The Sarina, by Edward Sheldon. And however, as Dave Kerr writes in his write-up on the film, I'll include it in the show notes, in the first ever mention of the film in the trades in March of 1924, it was created as based off a story by Paul Barron. And additionally, Paula Negri claims to have read a biography on Catherine the Great and to have originated the idea herself. So we have some mixed info as to the provenance of this film. But, you know, probably likeliest it's based off the Serena because that's what more sources say and that makes it better. But no. And this actually manifests in the film. and We can get into that now. The film is about a monarch named Catherine. She's the head of state of a vaguely Russian nation that is credited as a small European kingdom in the film. So we're in Lubitsch It's kind of a Catherine the Great film in that we have a character clearly influenced by Catherine the Great. Yeah. It is based off of a... Broadway played based on Catherine the Great. Mm -hmm. And yet there are modern cars. Russia could not be described at any point as a small European kingdom. (laughs) Yeah. And there are very few parallels to the specifics of Catherine the Great in this movie, aside from
0: her reputation as sleeping with her head of the guard. It's in the line of his pastiches of Euro countries. It would have a ton more political baggage to it if it were set in any particular country. And in fact, given that it's fairly studious about not being capable of being localized in a single real country, it was surprising to me how clearly and forcefully the ambassador is French. Yes. a fairly unflattering portrayal of a French politician as well. But for Lubitsch, maybe it's flattering. I don't know.
1: (laughs) There is a real error in this film of... A look at those silly European monarchists. The film feels more critical and generally disdainful of the idea of an absolute monarch of a state <laughs> than anything Lubitsch has done up to this point. For example, a film like Anna Boleyn, where he is, again, portraying a monarchy and a despotic monarch. That film doesn't seem to get quite as much hay out of the idea that, wow, this person is unfit to be the ruler and the entire system is broken. There's never really a conscious takedown of the entire English monarchy in Anna and so much as it's just about the palace intrigue. This feels like a satire of the entire idea and also of revolutionaries, we should add.
0: This is why there's all the modernist trappings within the film, right? You have the contrast between the palatial elements and the existence of cars and other things, right? Mm -hmm. And I think it's largely to just emphasize the idea of this whole political sphere as absurd. I mean, you have the repeated gag of the checks that are guaranteed by American bankers, right? Mm -hmm. Which, besides being a bit of pandering to American audiences and the stability of America, there's a genuine intellectual point there of the rise of the American economy relative to certain out-of-date European customs and systems. That's the reason why it's both unspecific to any particular European country and specifically set in a 20th century context of cars and modernism alongside its very old-school monarchical intrigue.
1: There are parallels to be drawn here with stuff like the Oyster Princess, where a major kind of running joke is the fact that the male romantic lead, the prince by Harry Liebke, is a prince with no kingdom to be a prince of, operating in a capitalistic world. And so he's simultaneously a prince and a pauper. And this later comes up in stuff like Monte Carlo, where Gina McDonald, she is run away from her fiance. She is out of money and yet has a title. That contrast between the more traditional class structure of monarchy, of titles versus the modern class structure of capital. This film repeatedly brings up this note of the Adolf Manjou character, who we need to talk about. He is delightful. I'm a huge fan. He repeatedly snuffs out the revolution with a checkbook. There's that great scene at the end where you have the typical Lubitsch object play. You have Adolf Manjou coming in, the queen's advisor, to deal with the revolutionary leader who wants to overthrow her. And the revolutionary leader comes in wearing a sword, and you cut from the sword to the advisor of the queen pulling out a checkbook. And of course, the checkbook has that delightful little monograph you mentioned guaranteed by American bankers. Then you cut not to the faces of an agreement or a handshake, but to the revolutionary's hand that was grasping the sword, doing the little money, money, money finger gesture. That says everything you need to know, right? These revolutionaries are not serious people in the face of the power of greed and capital to defang them. You tell that whole story in a typical Lubitsch way with objects and inference, but it feels like the centerpiece of the movie satire about one, the revolutionaries being essentially paper thin, and two, the powerlessness of this old style of monarchy and revolution in the face of American capitalism and deal-making.
0: One of the underlying ideas of the film is that Catherine is not, in fact, the ruler of her own country. She's a Mm -hmm. figurehead. And the chancellor is the de facto head of state because he's the only person who fully understands just how malleable people are Mm -hmm. in their political ideals. This idea of pliability is, I think, the central political idea of the film. It's a film that can seem at first studiously apolitical. People turn coat on a dime. If someone wants sex or if someone wants money or if someone is just annoyed (laughs) <laughs> that's something <laughs> they'll mold their own beliefs to suit what they want there's the moment when Alexei comes in and actually warns her that there's all of this to do about him getting in and it seems like the entire crux of the film yeah he finally gets in and warns her there's a revolution going on and they're coming for you And she just says, is that all you came to tell me about? And she had already been given the news
1: by the chancellor. And they go, yeah, there's a revolution going on, you know, whatever. What else is new? There's a tiny revolution on the
0: border. Yeah. The film itself engages us to expect that the revolution is a real problem, right? That they are underselling it. Oh, these are out-of-touch royals who don't understand their own downfall and how it's coming to them.
1: And that's the central mystery of the film for the first half, at least, where the chancellor, again, Adolf Manjou, who I called the advisor, but he's the chancellor, essentially downplays the revolution repeatedly. And the first time I watched it, I went, oh, is he trying to undercut the queen? Is he actually a secret revolutionary? Is he in on it? That's an intended possibility to enter your mind. Absolutely. But the film ends up revealing that, no, he just has a realistic attitude towards this. He knows exactly how shallow these revolutionaries are.
0: Yeah, and I think what's notable is that he understands how to put down the revolution, but Catherine doesn't seem to have any idea of how this goes on or what it means it's just a sideshow to her bedroom antics yeah which is in some ways a good satire on the state of a lot of existing monarchical nations to Mm -hmm. this day the monarchies exist basically as sideshows for the public to look at while actual politicking is accomplished by other people in seemingly lower spheres this is what i mean by it can seem a political. I mean, it calls forward more heavily than any other Lubitsch that I've seen up to this point. It calls forward to Ninochka, yeah. which is another film where people are able to be shifted with money. And in fact, Ninachka goes even further than that because with this film, there's kind of a suggestion that nobody is actually fanatically attached to their beliefs. And Ninachka, it goes so far as to say that nobody no matter who it may be or how committed they may seem, is all that attached to their politics when other conveniences arise. Or even when matters of the heart (laughs) arise. Yeah, which I think Lubitsch would characterize as a matter of convenience, as being sometimes trivial or whimsical in their own way, right? Yeah, yeah. That's not necessarily always how he presents them. He presents them as romantic, even in this film, The right. a romance between Alexei and Catherine, it's presented as a tragic thing. Right? Sort of.
1: I feel like the film admirably doesn't completely tip its hand, but mm-hmm. here's my thesis on the film, and it actually brings together this political reading and the romantic reading. Yeah. And for the sake of this take, Alexei is the central figure of this film, actually, even though I think it's probably Catherine. Alexei's attitude towards the revolution he has seen these revolutionaries there and he has mm-hmm. five alarm fire and he said, I need to tell the queen I'm loyal to the queen. Right? Yeah. And then he goes to the queen mm-hmm. and he warns them. But then you have Chancellor Adolf Menju essentially go, oh, it's nothing. Alexei has a fundamental misunderstanding of the nature of this revolution. He thinks it's an actual threat because he's naive. In fact the people in the know, the chancellor basically, who represents the political class in that country who actually does the work, understands that, no, this is just a part of the cycle. It's a part of the deal. They get the revolution out. They get drunk. You know, you get that beautiful shot of the champagne corks. The first real sign that, oh, these guys, this is a frat revolution. And so Alexei is a fundamental misunderstanding of this as genuine when it is, in fact, a part of the system. Now, what is Alexei's attitude in the bedroom? Well, He sees himself as a part of a tragic romance with Catherine. It's still ambiguous to me how much of his feelings towards Catherine are those of convenience. He's basically coerced into a relationship. (laughs) And yet Catherine claims to him he is the only man she ever loved. So Alexei fundamentally misunderstands his relationship. Because Catherine, her love is not a question of whether or not she ever loved him. Her love is a currency that can get thrown away. She loves three men in this movie. You have the man at the beginning, and it's always represented by that badge she puts on them. You have three badges in the movie, one for each lover. And Alexei is just the middle lover in this movie. That's all he is. We don't get to see the story of the other two lovers. I'm sure it's just as dramatic. But he seems to be the one lover who mistakes this whole thing for being a sincere play. So essentially, long story short, Alexei misunderstands the politics and the romance in the same way. And that to everyone else, to those in the know, this is all a game. To him, it's not. It's actually genuine. And that's why he's the naive fool.
0: But deep down, he may believe that. But does he really believe he believes that? Do you get what I'm (laughs) saying? Where there's this lying to yourself element. Oh, he's lying to himself.
1: I mean, otherwise, how would he suddenly turn on her so quickly and join the revolutionaries for like five minutes? Which is different
0: than naivete, right? Naivete would imply that he's not capable of turning on a dime like that. But I think there's this self-deception at play along with the external deception. And this is why I think the film ultimately really works for me great. Why I think we have to talk about its ending a little bit when we talk about these things. You mentioned that he's the middle lover and that he's no more or less important than the person who comes before or after him. But I think that the movie's a little bit more ambivalent on this point.
1: It's not as clean cut. I want to make clear I'm presenting a slightly reductive reading, but I think the film does problematize that. And can you explain to me why?
0: It problematizes it as far as I can tell. Maybe you have a deeper reading. But as far as I can tell, it problematizes it largely through Polo Negri's performance as Catherine, where after he, in a jealous fit, decides to, quote unquote, betray her to the revolution, the revolution turns out to actually have already been quelled and all the revolutionaries have arrived at the palace to swear fealty to the queen. When she finds this out, she immediately condemns Alexei to death, sends him off to be killed. And while he's waiting for his execution, she sends him a letter saying, yo, come talk to me and whatever. Those exact words. Depend. Yeah. Yo, come talk to me. But she says, whatever you say to me will determine whether you live or whether you die. He comes in and he says, I'm done with you. I'd rather die than have to deal with you anymore. And she responds to this by saying like, you're not important enough to me for me to kill you. So whatever, you can go get out of the palace, be with Anna. We haven't mentioned, but Alexei's pre-existent romance is with a woman named Anna who works within the palace. And She's
1: the queen's lady in waiting, and it's depicted by the fact that she literally waits a while for the queen earlier. I'll yeah, she does wait a lot.
0: So she says you can go back to Anna. He's very happy with this, and he turns on a dime yet ago and then is like, you truly are uh, the greatest queen in the world, and leaves. That's point one of ambiguity, which is what did he say that let him be spared. What were her grounds for sparing him or killing him? Or my pet theory is that she never intended to kill him at all. She only said that so that it would put pressure on him to try to reveal his true feelings to her. Whether he said, I'm committed to you, or whether he said, I hate you, she was always going to pardon him and let him live. Because ultimately, she does actually care about him. That's my reading, right? But that's ambiguous. That's me imposing my reading onto it. Do you want to know my reading? Because the <laughs> ending is so interesting.
1: It's one of the most ambiguous passages in any Lubitsch movie, in my opinion. Yeah. Here's my own reading of the ending, at least on my most recent viewing. And I should also preface this by saying that in even the best restoration by the Mama, which is unbelievable compared to the unwatchable version floating online, the title cards are very sparse. And it is unknown to me whether these represent a complete... They're based on uh, notes in the continuity reports or script. Mm. And So there are scenes in this film where I keep expecting intertitles where none come. And this is one such example where Catherine and Alexei have a very important conversation that we're not privy to because we don't read it. And that's fascinating. But here is my reading on the ending is that Alexei reveals his true feelings for Catherine or sort of because he has that line at the end. And this is the line that gets Catherine where he repeats that mantra of you're the greatest queen with the greatest heart. Right. Mm -hmm. However, for the first time, Alexei has kind of a smirk on his face. It's almost a coming of age moment. That's how he took it of he finally realizes the game, the game that everyone's been playing and he has not been aware of. And he has been feeding into unknowingly. And Catherine, I didn't read it as her wanting him to be honest. She's wanted to hear those words. Yeah, because it makes her feel better to hear those words of you are the greatest queen. This feeds her own bottomless ego, basically. That was my reading of the ending is it's this almost transactional thing where he's like, wow, I got what I needed, which is my life. Here, let me give you what you need, which is these
0: words. The obvious way to play the remainder of the film from that moment, if we were playing this in a purely cynical realm, it also reminds me of another film that's very similar to Ninochka, Billy Wilder's One, Two, Three, where I think if Billy Wilder were writing the ending, then this would wholly satisfy the Queen. Catherine would be, as you said, the transaction would be completed, and then Catherine would be totally satisfied and move on to the french ambassador as a new lover as a joke right mm-hmm. but that's not the performance that we get from poline Egri, right she doesn't seem happy for the rest of the film there's moments when she smiles moments when she's sexually suggestive with the ambassador there's always this underlying lack of joyfulness to it all right yeah. and the sadness that keeps kind of flitting across her face this is the kind of individual pain that makes the film's politics really interesting and i think really effective is that there's an ambiguity at the bottom of this all as to whether the queen is actually fully satisfied with this and whether this was just the latest in a long cycle or whether she like alexei has come to realize the game that's being played and whereas He's found a new confidence from it. He's clearly happy to leapfrog from her back to Anna as soon as he's pardoned. She's much more uncertain about it. Perhaps she's come to understand how powerless she actually is in the scheme of everything. But it's hard to know. As you said, it's a deeply ambiguous passage, even for Lubitsch. And I think it's such a smart way to handle this kind of monarch scandal slash palace intrigue movie. The portrayal of Catherine is simultaneously
1: very critical and satirical. She is this profoundly isolated figure. I highlighted a bit of Dave Kerr's writing here because I think it speaks to this, which is that he's speaking of the ending of the film here. Catherine, of course, must pay a price for her privilege. And Lubitsch portrays her ultimate isolation with grace, sympathy, and no trace of pathos. Most powerfully in a sequence in which Alexei passes through a series of courtyards and ceremonial halls through doors that grow gradually smaller and smaller Mm. until he finally finds her alone in the innermost bedchamber of her palace. That sequence impacted me as well. This sense that she is living in this way that she's completely separate from the concerns of essentially the ordinary people. And this runs two ways. How could she ever run a country in this circumstance? And two, how could she ever actually live a fulfilling life given how, hermetically sealed she is from the outside world. She never, at any point in the film, I think, leaves her chambers.
0: Yeah, gosh, I think that's right. I didn't even realize that. Hermetically sealed is exactly the phrase that I had in mind while watching this. And it's part of what makes, I think, the production design different as it is from Lubitsch's earlier films. It's what makes it work so well. Everything just seems sparely and precisely set to exactly what it needs to be and nothing more, rather than a kind of expansive set dressing, if you catch my meaning. That suggests an entire world of being. The set dressing is entirely in keeping with the idea of an enclosed space.
1: The amount of curtains. I mean, her palatial chamber is not this Versailles-type thing overlooking a grand garden. It's this room where all the windows have been blocked by curtains.
0: Yeah, it's like a black lodge, right? Yeah,
1: must have helped the budget, too. For sure.
0: I want to quickly double back. We've talked a little bit about some of the visual construction of the film and the doors and such, but I just want to note how great a lot of the cutting in the film is. We watched this on a copy provided by the Museum of Modern Art that's been restored very impressively. There's one sequence that we'll talk about (laughs) that was digitally restored, and there's a number of moments, especially towards the I think sixth or seventh reel kind of that there's one reel where there's a jump cut every like second or so yeah there's
1: one asterisk we should put on this is that for this period in Lubitsch's career a more theoretical than usual watch
0: yeah this film is compromised I'll say that I enjoyed it a lot more than I do usually similarly compromised silent films but it's just a beautifully cut film and a lot of that is down to how well staged it is those those long sequences of discussions without intertitles. I mean, the the sequence that most struck me for its lack of intertitles is the whole range of time when Alexei is being initiated into the palace's echelons, where you have Menju saying, no, he's crazy. Don't let him in. <laughs> and you have Catherine going, mm, how wonderful, right? All this stuff. And there's intertitles in there, but long passages of back and forth between all three of them happen with No intertitles, and it's just entirely dependent on performance. Number one, and most obviously, but also the cutting rhythm. Right. Sometimes when you talk about cutting like this in context of silent films, it can sound a little bit like you're grading on the curve. Oh, it's so expertly cuts between two shots and Uh wide to a medium to a close up at the right, and then bounces back out. This is a craft that I truly admire, even in films made in 2023. This can sound like a rudimentary compliment, but I really don't mean it that way which is it really does do a great job of cutting at precisely the right moments between wides and mediums and close-ups and bouncing back to the wide. Every time it does it, it feels rhythmically right. It feels in tune with the performances. And that's more difficult to accomplish when you don't have a soundtrack in order to guide the rhythm of the cuts. It can end up feeling very arbitrary when you're cutting without any dialogue taking place. I I know this from experience (laughs) and the dialogue passages in particular are just gorgeously cut. But there's also the graphic cutting. The montage is really beautiful as well. So many great graphic cuts that are so striking. My favorite cut in the entire movie is when Alexei and Catherine embrace for the first time. She rushes into his arms. It's a cowboy shot or it's a two shot filmed from the waist up of the two characters. And they come together in profile from the sides of the screen into the center. A pretty typical embrace moment. And then it cuts from that to an exterior shot, a very wide shot where Anna is sitting outside of the Queen's chambers looking through the window. The curtains close as she's sitting watching and then she stands up and that's how she realizes what they're doing inside. And so she realizes they're in a, a Lupich movie. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And she's seated in front of this pond that frames her beautifully with this acute angle. The cut takes place across two different tints, where inside the chambers, it's tinted more yellow sepia and then outdoors, it's night blue. And it's just this stunning, really tragic feeling cut. Some soldiers come and say, garden's closed, it's time to leave. I.e. the Queen's, these are her getting it on hours, you have to leave. The curtain things means to sex. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's my imitation of Pauline Stark. An incredible cut. And I think it's the best in the movie. It's very showy. But there's so many other great moments of cutting, even during some of the real where there's, as you said, a jump cut every second or two. Even within there, there's a lot of really striking cut moments. And it's just, I don't know. Full disclosure, I haven't watched every single film that you've done for the podcast. You haven't? How dare you? I know. But of all the Lubitsch I've seen, this is the film that I think was most consistently striking in its cuts. The moment when she's running away from Alexei as she's anticipating the revolution and she runs through this series of doorways and it just plays across these different axes where she'll be running from foreground right to background left and then it'll cut in closer and she enters the frame running towards the same place from background left towards foreground right. And then it cuts again to the reverse that shows her looking out over the lookout that she's just run to. And she's now looking from right to left. So Mm -hmm. there's just this awareness of using these graphical patterns to suggest confusion or to suggest scale or lack thereof. And it's a very smart movie. And The Palace never feels bigger than it does in that moment where she's been betrayed by Alexei and is anticipating her own death at the hands of the revolution. It's the one time we get that context, right? The yeah. layout of the palace is never
1: anything more than abstract. Yeah. But for most of the film, you kind of get this typical Lubitsch thing where mm-hmm. it's kind of a crappy palace, right? Yeah. And then suddenly it opens up into this, wow, there's actual stakes here? This is
0: a big place, right? It's a but- large
1: place, money. Money.
0: Yeah, and it's where the minimal set dressing really pays off yes. is in this moment. As I said, it's the first time when the palace feels really large, but it's empty. There's some paintings or tiles on the wall that are decorative, but the rooms that she runs through are completely flat empty floors, completely flat, empty ceilings, no furniture to speak of. She runs up and down this very wide staircase with no one in it. There's a guard posted every, I don't know what it would even be, five or six rooms. And it really gets at the loneliness of her position. There's a great moment in the film when he tells her, you're so well protected. You know, you you don't have to worry. You know, you have guards looking out for you. And he gestures over. We can see a silhouetted figure of a guard in another room Mm -hmm. who's posted outside and is walking back and forth. And she looks at the guard and she just says, like, what if that guy one day decides he hates me and decides to kill me? It's the one moment before... Alexei really turns on her. It's the one moment where she seems to be conscious of this idea: of, what if everything that's going on around me could all be changed at a moment? It's all for show. It's all a play. It's so cool, right? Like it's so hard in a film, especially a film this brief, but it's so hard to make a film that is this sweeping and abstract about its political subject on one hand and yet on the other achieves actual pathos for its characters, or at least for one character, and ties the consequences of those corrupt politics into the well-being of a person, and does it for the incredibly privileged head of state in a way that doesn't feel as though it's simply just romanticizing the plight of the rich. As compromised as the viewing may be, it's why I really attached to this movie pretty early on and didn't get shaken off, even with a small (laughs) amount of Paul Walkering in one moment.
1: We'll get to that in a second. I do want to mention that after having seen films like Madame DuBerry and Anna Bullen, which are Lubitsch's dead monarch films, (laughs) (laughs) um, this is as good of a direct comparison as we're ever going to get into the... Way in which Lubitsch's handling of monarchs and this kind of general palatial intrigue subject matter so drastically improved, it seems, as soon as he went to America. You can see this starting with Rosita, where the fearsome king is this slightly comic figure. He ends up not being, spoiler alert, a threat in that movie. That film has a shockingly happy ending. I was expecting it to end very, very dark. And it didn't. It feels like as soon as Lubitsch went to the U.S., he suddenly became this master of tone, right? Where in this film, it almost feels like the successful version of what he was attempting to do with his palatial intrigue melodramas, where the melodrama is still here. There's still a sense of real human hurt, of large emotions, you can call them. And yet it's all leavened by this general winking satire. And the two don't cancel each other out. They play into each other, where the satire is as much a reflection of the emotions Mm. on display as vice versa. Well put. Um, Thank you, finally. (laughs) (laughs) If I finally put something well today. The end result is finally these characters feel like humans (laughs) in a way that Anna Boleyn and Jen DuBerry never quite do. They feel like objects that are acted upon. In this case, the equivalent character, Catherine, her own emotional foibles add up to a rounded character. Imagine, if someone were to ask me what's this film about, I would not say it's about satirizing the monarchy, satirizing the interplay of capitalism and monarchy.
0: No, I think it's actually about the bedroom antics. It's more about that than anything else. See, I would say the opposite, but I get what you mean. You're not wrong. You're seeing the film through a particular prism, and I think what your point is partly that these prisms are all available at once.
1: Yes, the fact that the film can have its palace intrigue and also its winking satire allows both to thrive in a way that completes the characters.
0: Yeah. I talked about this briefly when I was talking about where is my treasure slash when I was dead, which is that there's a danger, especially when you're in a retrospective context like this podcast. There's always a danger of viewing everything through the lens of, okay, how does this reflect the filmmaker that I assume him to be from his most Mm -hmm. famous films? You can read too much into a particular thing. There was a whole rant I went on about the one time when there's a notable door sequence in that film. Again here, I up to this point tried to be careful to avoid it. But it really does feel like you can feel the Lubitsch touch coming into clear focus here, right? Like all these trademarks of his. Whether his film was set in a palace or in poverty, it was still identifiable as having these extremely distinct trademarks and being accomplished in these very specific ways. You can really see that coming into focus with these American films. You can see it
1: permutate in so many ways where it feels like Rosita has some of that but not entirely where Rosita still has visuals that are a bit more overtly poetical and you still don't have the classic drawing room scenes, the two shots in well-appointed modern rooms that are his trademark, that wouldn't come to the marriage circle, which I think is the closest I can pinpoint to like that's when the Lubitsch formula really crystallized. Yeah. This film has so much in common with the marriage circle <laughs> in that way. And, you know, between these two films, you have three women, which I think is not a tonal success. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it doesn't quite nail the comedy element of it. And I think that's for the worse. And then from here, Lady Windermere's fan is absolutely of a piece with this film in which you have this incredible threading of the needle between laughing at the antics of these characters and feeling genuine empathy for them. Not those two are exclusive. And then with Student Prince and Old Heidelberg, which is still my favorite of his silent films. He just makes it grand. It's his first MGM film. It has all of the lessons that he's learned from this period, but he explodes them into a grand melodrama of a thing, which shouldn't work, but does in my opinion. If we're going to take a a wide look at this period in his career, it is so fascinating. If the Berlin period is him experimenting in every direction and to mixed results, sometimes it's great. Sometimes it's a a boring disaster. But in this period, he is it's not that he's necessarily taking fewer risks. It's that he's becoming more refined in his risk taking. (laughs) He's found his general milieu he likes to play in at this point and would basically continue for the rest of his career with one or two exceptions. And he is trying out every trick in the book within that. Let's talk about the restoration.
0: A very impressive restoration.
1: Yeah. So, Dave Kerr is on for our next episode and he'll go way more into this than I can recall because we recorded that like six months ago. But, so this is one of four films that the MoMA has somewhat recently restored, along with Rosita, Lady Windermere's fan, and The Marriage Circle. And this film is kind of out there with Rosita as having very compromised sources. However, I think this one, they come through more actually. And in, in the Rosita restoration, if I hadn't been told that the film was severely compromised before watching it, I probably would not have known with Rosita. It basically holds together. This film, now has three or four passages where we're seeing the artifacts of the fact that the film was largely lost for a while. It's not in great shape. The visuals actually come through great, but it's the sections of the film are just missing.
0: And they've had to digitally reconstruct one sequence. There's a sequence that's just crucial to the plot where... Alexei and Anna and the Queen are all in the same room and Anna is begging the Queen to let her have Alexei and Alexei is totally noncommittal and of course Catherine decides to tell Anna get out of the palace and it's just clearly critical to the film and especially to the ending where she tells him he can go back to Anna that this moment be established that it be made clear that Anna wants Alexei, and then Alexei could basically go either way as far as his attachment to the woman. In olden times with the Silent Restoration, you would cover that scene with a title card describing the missing scene. But with digital tools, it's possible to reconstruct it in a kind of hypothetical way where characters' performances, that is their position on screen and their facial expressions and such, are cut out from other moments in the film and placed over a background of, in this case, mostly curtains. So you get an interesting Kuleshov effect thing where you cut to the exact same cobbled together shot of Anna. There's even an especially impressive moment where Anna is taken from... One moment and she kind of rushes into Alexei trying to put her arms around him. And you can even see one of her arms goes behind him and one of them goes in front of him. Yeah, It's very impressive. You can tell, especially if you're looking for it, you can tell that she's been cut out from part of the film and carefully composited Mm -hmm. over top of him who has also been cut out from another part of the film and carefully composited over the background. But it's fairly effective in evoking this hypothetical sense of what this scene may have been like. I think there's a completely justifiable debate to be had as to whether this is the best way to present a restoration of the film or that Versus like a card. title card that just says, this is what happened, we lost it. And to be completely clear, this is not me criticizing the MoMA restoration for doing this. It's a completely defensible way to do it. And they state up front that this scene has been digitally formed. The comparison that came to mind was if anybody's seen the Fast and the Furious Seven. <laughs> F7? Was it Seven? They're f- all the same. f I
1: have no idea. I've never watched a fast film.
0: They're all they're all the same. These movies are all the same. So I had to Wikipedia search it to confirm that. Yes, in Fast and Furious Seven, Paul Walker died midway through production. And so they had to reorient the entire film to, one, have a plot that worked with the limited footage of Walker they had, and two, that would function as a send-off to the character because he leaves by the end. He does not die in the film. He just drives off, which you can debate the merits or problems of Fast and Furious 7 as a work of filmmaking in that light till the cows come home. But to focus specifically on the Paul Walker scenes... Sometimes they did cart his performance from a given scene over into another scene. Sometimes they used his brothers as stand-ins and put CGI over their faces. And this was before you had AI voice recreation. So that wasn't as available Mm -hmm. in order to complete the film. And so sometimes he'll just be having conversations and the conversations will make sense on paper, so to speak. But there will be that uncanny sense of, wait, that's a kind of a weird way for him to respond to that particular line of inquiry from vin diesel they're like oh that's the weird reaction shot of paul in that moment this
1: is way more in-depth than my comparison which is just that episode where they use the outtakes from millhouse when he plays a follow boy to radio wolf (laughs) castle's radioactive man
0: (laughs) that's fun i bring this up and i describe it so extensively not just because you know i'm overly fixated on this Fast and Furious moment, but because one, it, I think, does a pretty good job of describing the feeling of watching this reconstructed scene. And two, because I think a lot of the aesthetic and ethical ideas about trying to reconstruct something this way overlaps. In one case, you have a dead person, Paul Walker, and in the other case, you have a dead scene in Forbidden Paradise. And in both cases, you're trying to resurrect them because the film doesn't really function fully without them. And is it more right to just accept that that thing is gone? Or is it more right to just plaster a handful of scenes that Carrie Fisher did shoot for The Last Jedi over top of unrelated dialogue?
1: The real question is, is not the correct course of action in 2023 to train an AI model? on the rest of the film yeah. and tell it what the scene is missing and get it to recreate the scene and that'll be interesting right when we that will be it. not to talk, talk about AI but I actually think like oh, one of the good use cases of this is yeah. that there's 12 frames missing in a print yeah I think that, that's a pretty good use of it yeah if you try to just cut out for example later in this film you have the climax essentially and it's in my opinion, that's just the thing to watch. Severely undercut by the fact that so many frames are missing in the climax. that It's like pressing the skip button on VLC.
0: That's exactly what I thought. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: it's like trying to fast forward through the boring part of a movie, right? And imagine if you just train an AI on the footage that is there. This is me speculating. But in like a couple of years, you're probably going to be able to do that seamlessly. You're 100% going to be no, able to do that. That opens up a whole, and that excites me. Yeah. As far as a benign use of this profound thing I'm ambivalent about, film restoration could really benefit from this, hopefully.
0: Or we could resurrect Peter Cushing. It raises questions that have been simmering for a long time about the distinction between a restoration that is presented for general consumption and a work of an archive. There is always the question of, well, if we're taking the footage from the negative, then we're presenting it. At the quality of the negative or even at the quality of a negative where we go in and digitally clean up all the little scratches or errors.
1: But no one at the time would have seen it in that quality. It's like the blue skies and the
0: good, the bad and the ugly. Yeah, they're there in the negative,
1: but not really on the print.
0: Yeah, I've been watching Twin Peaks lately and I keep on thinking and it gets especially obvious when occasionally there's a video mastered shot when there's an effect or something that isn't in the 35 millimeter negative. And I keep on thinking, before 2014, nobody ever watched Twin
1: Peaks this way, ever. It's like the Star Trek thing, right? Where when they remastered the first two Star Trek series, they had two options, right? They could either cut to VFX shots Mm -hmm. that were basically, you know, old analog tape quality. Yeah. But because they scanned all the negatives and the restorations of the shows are gorgeous Mm -hmm. because they scanned all the negatives and reconstructed those TV shows that were designed, even the set design is designed for that low quality. Yeah. From the ground up, they had to redesign the VFX and it's a different experience watching it now, not just because of the VFX, but because you're seeing it With a delivery exhibition system, it was never designed for from
0: production design forward. The film's restoration as it stands, which is not available as this is being recorded to the general public. It's a good occasion to bring up some of these questions about the ethics or the practices or the integrity of restoration. What I end up coming back to is... As long as you have a clear and consistent philosophy surrounding fidelity to the original version. And of course, the question is, what form does that fidelity take? But as long as you have a clear form and philosophy in mind for that, that you hew to consistently and you're transparent about that form and philosophy and how you went about achieving it which we get with the restoration notes at the head of this, which I always love it. Some people hate it, but I love it when there's two minutes of restoration notes before the movie starts. Never a bad thing, in my Yeah, life. I love it. The only time I mind it is if you're trying to fully recreate a theatrical experience, including trailers and stuff. I guess there's an argument to me, but generally speaking, I love it. Just put them before the trailers in that case, I guess. As long as you're doing that, then I'm fine with it because that allows, one, for the transparency and two, for discussion- to hopefully keep on working towards a more and more perfect version of a shared and open archive of all these old movies.
1: In a perfect world, all these films would be restored, and also we'd have a purest version that's just okay, here's what we have. You know, and then we have, here's the most watchable version. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In case you want to just see it as a film and have an experience. There's truly no one way to do this. I think one great example is the MoMA's restoration of Rosita, which mm-hmm. I don't know if you got to the nighttime scene with the beautiful sparkle. Yeah, effects. yeah, 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 yeah. Those fireworks effects were done digitally. The print they had was monochrome. And so they obviously did the thing that we all, you know, everyone does when they restore these things, they digitally add the tinting. But at someone at some point, Dave mentioned to me, had the idea of digitally replicating the hand-painted color effect on the fireworks. The Mm. effect is stunning. I mean, it's it's incredible. I think it's the visual high point of the film. Yeah. Sometimes restoration becomes this almost collaboration where you can bring out what's already interesting in something.
0: Well, I want to double back to your use of the word purist, even like a purist version of the movie, because what would that mean? Hiring
1: an actual piano player to play some ragtime at their low budget Albuquerque cinema.
0: With this film, it's all tinted, but they used materials where the restoration notes indicate that some of it had to be... Inferred. Yeah, some of the tinting had to be inferred from just the existing notes common. and such. Yeah. So a purist version, is it including that tinting or is it just showing what the restoration materials that you had yeah. available looked like and is they, it the lowest also,
1: common denominator of what you know you know?
0: Yeah, and they also had limited intertitles, so they had to go back to old censor's notes and such. So is the purest version just not having any of those intertitles or only using sometimes the foreign uh, intertitles? You know what I mean? Like the these questions of even what a puritanical version of these restorations would be just get so thorny.
1: I'm glad you brought up the tinting because I think this film visually... Is held together by the tinting in certain ways. It's such, it's so clearly a key part of the film's visual scheme because it immediately one, it establishes location so well. The Queen's Palace is always a certain color. Certain outdoor areas are blue, purple, depending on the time of day. But what I really want to single out are the nighttime exteriors because, as we have discussed well in the Berlin period of this podcast, and will unfortunately encounter again when we find, for example, the student principal Heidelberg, which. Feels like it should be tinted, and the current version is not. Nighttime scenes using the Berlin V lighting or even just broad daylight often don't play at all. You cannot tell what time of day it is, they don't establish the mood. It's a bit of a disaster. We see that on the Wildcat, actually. That's probably the best example along with Meyer from Berlin. But as soon as Lubitsch moves to Hollywood, a few things happen. One, as in Loves of the Pharaoh, he's in a dark studio now, which means he can actually do nighttime exteriors on his interior studio set. Without broad daylight coming in. Two, they're also tinting it and using a variety of, in this case, pretty striking motivated sources. <laughs> you have one shot in the nighttime exteriors that I just love where a car pulls up and the headlights are extended by what looks like a Fresnel lamp focusing. You have beautiful, quintessential three point lighting of the era where sometimes a shadow will fall on the wall, or whatever, but the backlighting is striking. And throughout, you have this beautiful tonal variance created by this specific combo of three-point lighting and tinting. For example, you have that cut you mentioned between the mm-hmm. interior of the Queen's Palace, which is this almost suffocating orange. It feels like how I would like tungsten scenes and color correct everything to be almost like a little too warm and cozy so that it almost feels a little hellish. And something you cut to that nighttime exterior, which is this really bold blue. Our eyes work with memory colors. If we look at a certain color for long enough, our eyes acclimatize to that. And then if we cut away from that, the color contrast is magnified because our eyes are suddenly being given a hue that is opposed to that original hue. Every time it cut to the outdoors, it almost felt like a cool breeze for me. It's like, oh, we're finally out of this suffocating, suffocating room. Later on, you have the interesting play with motivated sources with the revolutionaries where you have one pretty bold combination. We cut from the balcony where the revolutionary heads are, which is yellow, which again, rhymes with the queen's palace. And then we have the actual common revolutionaries, the soldiers who expect to overthrow the queen depicted with this blue. And again, that's lightly motivated by the fact that they're lit by moonlight and the aristocrats are on a balcony lit by what might be gas lights or something. That also connects it to this motif of outside and inside. You have inside the institutions, inside the palace is always this yellow. In some form or another, depending on the time of day, it might be a dull yellow or it might be a hot yellow. More often though, the goings-on outside of the palace they generally happen at night in this movie. So we have this association with the common people and the blue of moonlight. It's the inner world and the outer world. Yeah, I just loved what Anger and Lubitsch and everyone did to create that color rhythm because it's really striking. Oh, one more thing. I need you to acknowledge. Mm-hmm.
0: I might. Adolph Menjou. Yeah. Oh, we didn't talk about yeah. him at all. We haven't
1: really dealt performances, but to me, I've seen Adolph Menjou in prominent roles in at least five movies now, but in the three films in this podcast series in which he plays a prominent role, which are A Woman of Paris, The Marriage Circle, and this. He dominates every single... I cannot take my eyes off that man. He floats on a cloud above everything. He is... I've never seen someone so successfully give off this air of, I'm just here for the laughs. He is so lovely. I lo- he's Just one of my favorite character actors from this period immediately. I mean,
0: I think Polonegri is handily best in show. Not to say he's not really good in this. But I'm glad you like him so much. For reasons you laid out, it's totally in keeping with your proclivity for goblins in these movies. So that's great. He's not a goblin. He's he, he's helpful. He's he's chaotic good. He's a little bit, he's, you know, goblins can be good. He's really good. I'll mention just one more briefly about the editing is that one of my favorite edits in the whole film is a dissolve, pretty rare in the film, from a wide of a car moving along to him sitting in it. And he has this inscrutably ambivalent (laughs) look on his face. And he rides almost universally between this kind of ambivalence and a knowing amusedness almost the whole way throughout the film. There's some moments when he's a bit stressed and worried when Alexei is first entering the palace. But otherwise, there's a general sense that he's the one who really knows what's going on, which is what feeds into the impression that the film gives that maybe he's not on the level and he's coming back to tear down the Queen's rule. I do think the film misdirects
1: you a little, where that's the one time in the film he has a grave, sullen look in his face. Mm-hmm. He's going to meet the revolutionaries and you know, you think, mm-hmm. oh, is, is, you know, is this the real him? Is that goofy thing a front? Yeah. But then you realize, no, that sullen face is the front. Yeah. And the real him is this goofy chancellor. He keeps the whole thing afloat. He has a good humor about it. And generally a guy who knows what's up in Lubitsch Yeah. I think Paula Negri is very good in this. I think this is probably the best performance I've seen her give. And that's not a back-ended thing. I think she's generally very good. I think what I find very rewarding about this particular Paula Negri performance is that she acquits herself so well to the 20s Hollywood style of acting in comparison to the pantomimic style of acting. Because you've seen her at her most pantomime 1910s style in the Wildcat, right? And she's literally flailing her arms for most of that movie. Her body is just contorting itself. It's this full-on wide-shot performance, right? She's a lot of fun in that, yeah. Yeah, and I think she's great in that. And this is not a wide-shot movie. This is a close-up movie. And suddenly, she is still a ham. <laughs> she's still a ham, but she's a ham in close-up. She uses her face. And I do think if I have one criticism of this performance, perhaps, it's that I think she, she has a stock trick that she uses to portray lust that she really, really leans on. And I think it's a great trick, but I uh, occasionally I'm like, is this a shot from earlier in the film? <laughs> <laughs> so again, that that's my little note of question, but I think she's pretty much great in this. I just, yeah, you're right. I love goblins. And Adolf Benjou. maybe my favorite character type in movies is the character who seems to exist outside the conflict of the film. And that's why I love Felix Broussard because that's his character in Shop Around the Corner. I mean, yeah. I love him for a million reasons, but in Shop Around the Corner, his whole character is, he has this, indomitable ability to not get invested in any conflict that's his character if you have to describe it and that's why we all love felix persard and Chop around the corner and we all talk about him constantly adolf Menchu is like the 20s dramedy version of that but he's basically about two he's one or two steps removed from groucho marx i can't quite say the same necessarily for rod laroque who it should be noted was apparently according to the scott iman book cast because Negri really wanted him in the film because they were currently dating. So it is one of those things. And this happens actually a lot in Hollywood films of this era. I don't know if you know this, but a lot of the times people aren't cast for necessarily their merits. Oh, did that um, happen back then? Oh, man. Oh, boy. <laughs> people act like it's a new thing. <laughs> Anyways, he is handily the weak link in the cast. But I actually think it's not that I blame Rod Lerock. He's fine. It's just that I he's think, fine. I don't think Luvich ever consistently nailed the young, conventionally handsome, sincere male lead. I think he was at the mercy of the actor's talents. Yeah, and unfortunately in Berlin, he was at the mercy of Harry Lee. <laughs> um, <laughs> I completely agree. I mean, the one that sticks out for me as as incredible is probably Robert Stack and To Me or Not to be, who is just yeah. so guileless the entire movie does a pitch perfect performance. Or you know, you could also see Jimmy Stewart in Shop Around the Corner. Yeah, but you know, that's what yeah. happens when you cast the greatest actor in history.
0: Design for Living works just barely because Gary Cooper. Just barely fits the mold of what that movie <laughs> needs him to be. Yeah, he's such know, such
1: an odd choice, and Lubitsch had such confidence in him. Like, Gary Cooper is that role, and he's one of the better ones. I'm in the minority in thinking that Raymond Navarro in Student Prince is very good. People often cite him as a weakness in that film. I think he's very good. Maybe I'm being too harsh on Old Ernst because New he's- Ernst
0: is good. He got better, he got better at this is as he bad. went along. Right.
1: Yeah. We're at an inflection point, right? Where the Ernst of Berlin has pretty much fully transformed at this point into the Ernst of Hollywood. Yeah. And the bandwidth for what he's trying, as has been noted a lot of times, is narrowed. But he is finding so much nuance within that narrower bandwidth to do really incredible things. He's still a different filmmaker every film in a meaningful way. Yeah. Uh,
0: it's just that he is, I think, clearly more aware of his strengths. It's not like Rod LaRocque is bad or stiff or anything. I think he performs the role with almost exactly the amount of nuance Hmm. afforded it on the page. It's just that and menju. Act circles around him. Yeah, they both go so much further than just what's on the page, particularly in uh, the closing passages of a film. There's a depth to their sadness or bemusedness or ambivalence or triumph or defeat that goes beyond what could be written. It plays out at almost like a million iterations of different facial expressions at a time, which is not to say that they're like suddenly leaping between totally different expressions, but which is just to say that they're shifting into all these different emotional states of being as they go. To return to the whole point of you, yeah, Menju's great. He's terrific in this. He's clearly an asset. He's clearly capable of doing exactly the kind of thing that Lubitsch needs an actor to do. In a way that's more specific to Lubitsch than what Pola Negri accomplishes here, which is why I understand you having a particular <laughs> preference for Menju as well, right? Because if Lubitsch is your favorite director, then of course, you know you're going to appreciate a, a nice execution of one of his stock type.
1: He's immediately joined the ranks for me of credible recurring character actors in the films. He's up there with Bressart and Edward Everett Horton for me. It's like the right the great perennials. Bressart's still my favorite. Because he he, start, has the best scene in any Lubitsch film. The single, in my opinion, best line reading in his career is the ending of to be or not to be. Can we also acknowledge how odd it is that Catherine the Great has, in this period of history, not one but two incredibly loose and downright libelous, not biopics but films about her made at this point. You have this in The Scarlet Empress and Forbidden Paradise is fine. Scarlet Empress is one of the greatest films ever made in my opinion.
0: She's the subject of even beyond that like a lot of loose adaptations throughout history. Like I think just like Cleopatra. As an archetype she is contained multitudes. There's a show on right now called The Great. Again like it's a loose satirical comedy about Catherine the Great.
1: Or the Nicholas Holt canon that I need to get.
0: Maybe it's the fact that it's Russia, therefore, it's just removed enough from Anglo-Saxon sensibilities that loosely adapting her life is appealing. So you get all of the royalty without.
1: And you can also make her grotesque because Russia is the other, of course.
0: Yeah, exactly. As
1: much as I I sound like I'm being critical. The Scarred Empress gets so much hay out of making Russia the other. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. It's downright offensive when you think about it. But it is. Oh, my gosh.
0: Lovely. It's one of the most beautiful movies ever made.
1: But we're not talking about that now.
0: We're talking... I want to
1: talk about Scar- the Von Sternberg podcast.
0: Well, that feels like as good a time to wrap up the episode as any of that. Do right, you, 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 you want to wrap it up? Well, thank you for joining me today, Devin, to discuss Forbidden Paradise. I think we've uncovered a lot of hidden truths and nuances about the film that no one ever imagined before they listened to your podcast to be told what to think.
1: Well, uh, <laughs> do you want to thank me for joining you? I, d- I just did. Well, it's an honor to be here, Will. All right. Now you do the outro.
0: Sure. Well, I'm Will Ross. I am 81 years of age. I've had nine children and 42 grandchildren and have almost a billion citizens. I have rheumatism, a collapsed uterus, I'm morbidly obese, and deaf in one ear. I have known 11 prime ministers and passed 2,347 pieces of legislation. I've been in office 62 years, 234 days. Thus, I am the longest-serving monarch in world history. I'm responsible for five households and a staff of over 3,000. I am cantankerous, boring, greedy, fat, ill-tempered, at times selfish and myopic, both metaphorically and literally. I am perhaps disagreeably attached to power and should not have smashed the emperor of Russia's egg. But I am anything but insane. And this is How Would Lubitsch Do It? That is a passage from the Stephen Freer's masterpiece,
1: Victorian Abdul Shot, we must know, by Danny Cohen. All right. This podcast, guaranteed by American bankers.
0: Hey, that's that's much better. <laughs>
1: <laughs> All right, I'm going to cut.
0: Next week, Dave Kerr
1: joins us to discuss Lady Windermere's Fan. Head over to ErnstCast.com for links to the various public domain films we will be discussing this season and other resources such as show notes and our Discord server. How Would Lubage Do It? is a production of Moving Image Agency. Will Ross was our dialogue editor for this episode. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review us on whatever podcast service you happen to use. We'd like to acknowledge that this podcast was produced on the unceded territory of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples.